Hello, hello, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. We are back. Um, my salute goes out to everyone who listened to our last episode of the year, last year, uh, which was, I think, what, two and a half hours long? It was epically it was long. long. It's not going to be that long. That was... Uh... Uh, please. <laughs> you asked me to do some work, Gabriel, and uh, I know a strange thing, me doing work, but you asked me to do some work and I'm not going to be able to finish it if we do two and a half hours again. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going we're gonna to keep our, we're gonna keep it together. And, uh, and, uh, and I just want to start off by saying, uh, I, I, I hope you have a very good year. I hope that 20, I, I think that 2022 has started in quite a nice way. Notice mm. that there has not been every year since the year after Mandela died, uh, there has been like a major race incident. Um, yeah, and there wasn't one this year. Over the December, January period. Now, maybe it's still too soon. Like the, 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 the next option is that something terrible happens in schools, uh, inland schools on Wednesday. Uh, but so far, as we, you know, when schools start, that's also sometimes when it happens, like Shrizer Rainica, what's called Brackenfonson. But so far, so good. Um, and uh, and I think that uh, there's something telling about the fact that the curfew was lifted a couple of days before New Year's Eve. Well, I will, I will uh, say that there was quite a bit of news in the end of the year period, which helped i think suck the oxygen out of any of these like little things i mean you know we had parliament burning down we had the sonder report we had a bunch of things uh, so it wasn't as quiet as a december as it normally is but concord yes, being think, attacked yeah concord being attacked. There, there were a couple of things because often you know these things go on for so long because there's literally nothing else in the news and i think that's partly why whoever is you know encouraging these things for them in December. There's nothing to compete with you for airtime. But part of it is also that there has been good news. Well, yes, that too. And good news, like I think the key philosophy of the Institute of Race Relations in a way is how do you improve race relations in South Africa by improving everything else? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it turns out that like we were... We were talking about this just before we started recording. What we discussed uh, on two crickets uh, from the first South African variant in January 2021, which came to be known as the beta variant, to the Omicron variant, and also what we did in, our, in the in the in the um, media briefing, the graphs we put out, the predictions we made about how um, how the Omicron wave would turn out to be. They've been exactly right. The most likely scenario that we predicted has been the scenario. It's been high cases, very low deaths, very low hospitalizations. Uh, the reasons for this have been attributed even now by the Department of Health uh, largely to convalescent protection in conjunction with vaccination protection for some people. A little bit of vaccination mixed in there, yeah. Yeah, but a minority vaccinated country has had a has had a, a, a stellar performance and it's because we had such a useless performance in all the other waves. Uh, <laughs> yes. basically everyone got it and then once everyone's got it um 
you're in the endemic endgame. So that is good news, and it's so hard to ignore that we literally got our our our, our uh, New Year's Eve party uh, without a curfew, and lots of uh, scientists um, have been allowed, uh, both by their sort of departments, as it were, um, the the secret nexus of funders that might punish you if you speak out, and also by um, editors. Scientists have been allowed to go and say, "Look at the facts. We're doing really well." Um, we do very well because we've done so badly before. The situation is not what it was. Um, and so we need to change our outlook. Um, and I think that, I don't know, man, I just feel like. So uh, I, I, I feel like there's the news in the air. Yeah. Can I ask you a question that you may know the answer to, but which I certainly don't? So uh, it, it, I'm correct in saying that the data is pretty clear that Omicron even for those who have never had COVID, seems to be less dangerous. I think I think I have read that. Yeah, less dangerous than Delta. Not yes, clear Delta. that it's any less. Not clear that it's any less dangerous than Beta. Um, right. And it seems uh, like it's definitely more dangerous than uh, Wuhan uh, than the than the original, uh, which is called the wild version, version zero point so the the suggestion is that, that that I've heard some people make is that Omicron is going to turn up in the end to kind of be a good thing because as far as COVID waves can be a good thing because it's very contagious and it's not as bad as Delta. So relatively speaking, it's actually going to push us right into the end of the pandemic across the whole world. What do you make of that? Um, I, a, a lot of Americans have been pushing that kind of line. Yes, I think it's. That's where I, it. I think it's kind of silly, in the sense that it's overlooking all the people who convalesced in earlier waves. So I've literally read in the Atlantic, for example, and heard on I think it was NPR, someone say, "Now everyone's going to get it. Right. Everyone's going to no the line. Everyone's going to get Omicron. Now that's definitely not true. That's crazy talk." Um, lots well, of people got Delta. Uh, <laughs> lots of people uh, uh, got Alpha. If you've been vaccinated, don't you have sort of thirty percent protection, roughly speaking, uh, against Omicron anyway? Well, to pr protection against infection. Against yeah, infection, I, right? So, in other words, that's already thirty percent of of vaccinated people who are presumably not going to get it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> No, but it's crazy. Uh, I, I, there is a um, the, the, there's a sense in which some changes are hard to fathom. Um, so it's easier to it's easier to look back and and be like it was always zero, and then suddenly there was this huge change, and then it was one. So it's like no one had it, excepting for the people who definitely had it and got sick right. or died, um, and then suddenly everyone had it, uh, and you miss out. On the fact that no, it was gradually in the first wave, nine out of ten people who caught it did not get tested positive, um, and we can see this from the zero prevalence studies that were done in in big cities, especially around New York State, the whole state. Uh, uh, in the that's just the alpha wave. Twenty percent of people in New York State had it in the alpha wave. Uh, sorry, in the in the in the wild wave. Then the alpha wave comes on the second wave. 
another 20% get it or whatever it is. Then the Delta wave, another 20% get it. Now the Omicron wave, another. I did. I, I made the argument last year on the show that it might very well be the case that the UK looks back on the travel ban with regret because it thinks uh, Omicron is, an, is a – that you would rather have Omicron start taking over from Delta sooner than later. Um, if you're still having a Delta wave, which they were when they travel banned us, um, you'd rather have the, that displaced by the relatively less deadly um, Omicron variant. Omicron. But again, there's this thing where people say Omicron is a less uh, is a less severe variant. It's only less severe than Delta. It's not less severe than Beta Alpha uh, or the original version. Um, okay, that's nitpicking. Uh, but it, but part of the reason that it matters is because as people go forward um into the end game i think there's going to be an in there's going to be a very heavy one thing i expect in 2022 is for it to become fashionable to say you know what we're not going to talk about coronavirus <laughs> um well and i've the, seen uh, that like in the sticks during uh, the plague there were definitely some places in the free state for example where they would never you'd have a whole function and no one would ever mention it someone would make a speech and they say there's that thing we're not going to talk about let's talk about everything else but i mean like it's yeah I, I i literally had something like that while i was on holiday in the northern cape someone said look i'm not going to ask you your opinion on, on, on COVID or anything uh <laughs> i think that's going to get hipper and more mainstream and what why that matters is Last impressions, like neurologically, we know this to be true. And politically, I think it sort of holds up. People's first impressions and their last impressions really matter quite a lot. Mm. Um, sometimes I play the game like, what's your favorite first line of a book? Uh, often the first line is even better remembered than the last line of the book. But that's partly because books often have terrible last lines. But many people can remember the, the endings of movies. <laughs> movies that they really didn't like. You know, there's something interesting about an ending. And and and, no, and 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 because you're not going to save video games too. There we go. And people, when 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 there's one sense in which COVID will end, which is when people stop wanting to talk about it. Right. And then the last thing you heard before you stopped wanting to talk about it could be politically very important, uh, which could determine how we deal with the next plague and also how we deal with a whole bunch of issues in between. Um, and so. Shortcuts like Omicron was a less aggressive variant and everyone got it and that's what made it all better. Uh, that then make people forget that in fact there was incremental infection that was overlooked uh, all along the way, particularly in South Africa. Uh, you know, you overlook that fact and I think you overlook some of the policy mistakes that we made. Um, and and that and that puts us not in a great position. But for sure, the, it seems that what I've heard about how uh, the the nineteen eighteen flu was remembered is that basically something like this happened where people they weren't particularly proud of how they acted. They weren't particularly proud of how society acted in various ways. There was a lot of sort of shame and regret and un, and boredness and discomfort with the whole thing, and so people just said and talk about it. And that's why it became got this sort of tagline of being the forgotten plague for a long time, mm. because it was very devastating, you know, uh, as a percent in percentage terms, much worse than COVID, and yet it sort of it, it dropped out of memory for a long time uh, for a lot of people. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a similar thing happens to COVID. That in twenty twenty five, it's just not done to talk about. 
Well, okay. I think the flip side of it is that there are going to be people who, I think it's going to be a talking point. In other words, like in hip conversation, dinner table conversation, hanging out with your friends, when people's right, when people are in a position where their minds are genuinely open to new information, new arguments, new analysis, I, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I think people are going to, I think victories will be claimed and talking points will be held onto that get used again and again and again going forward. Um, and, and, and that is a concern to me. I mean, and partly because I would like to be one of those people. I think that there's a lesson to be learned from the Soviet Union. Uh, South Africa <laughs> become the Soviet Union. And the lesson is that if you let the government run healthcare, you will get worse outcomes in this very poor and corrupt country. And if in 2025, the government is pushing to nationalize healthcare as it is pushing now, if it's still pushing then, I would very much like to say, guys, can we remember that South Africa had probably the worst infection rate in the world? Uh, <laughs> like serologically, that just seems to be what it is. Now that the Department of Health is, is coming out saying 70 to 90% of people are infected, serologically... Looks like we're the worst country in the world. Age-adjusted deaths, we're one of the worst countries in the world. Unemployment increases, worst country in the world per capita, as far as I can tell. Um, so in terms of lives and livelihoods, worst performance in the world. What was the input? Most arbitrary, pernicious, like most just mad lockdowns. The only place I can think of that had 22 months of Disaster Management Act abrogation of parliament. Like, no, South America, Europe, countries just haven't done that. We did it. Right. We did all. We and, just and did everything that we will never forget. The one thing we'll never forget, though, I think, is the burning of the rotisserie chicken. Yes, that is a perfect example. We must never forget. But that's, that. You must never yeah, forget. No, that. I, I, that, it's just so funny, though, that it's difficult to forget that one. In fact, I think if, you know, a, a, you know, 10 years from now, if anyone asks me, oh, what was this COVID like in South Africa? I'll be like, you know what? They're bad. <laughs> <It's Dude, chicken. laughs> they said you couldn't buy open toed shoes in winter. And then you weren't allowed to buy a rotisserie chicken in the grocery store, but you were allowed yeah. to buy. And then, and then you understand that the ANC learned a lot from the Soviet Union because that's a very Soviet way to look at the problem. Oh, it's so it's so winter. Good. Why, comrades, would you need open-toed shoes? <laughs> Someone must promulgate this regulation. Someone must arrest any social deviant degenerate. Yes. is taking away resources and creating unnecessary risk by having open-toed shoes or purchasing them. Only counter-revolutionaries purchase open-toed shoes. In winter. <laughs> and Becky Taylor marching up and down the beach to make sure that no one's suffering. You know, there really was yeah. mad stuff that lined up. And it is good to remember the funny side um, because, it, because it was so devastating. And it's hard to hold on to the devastating stuff. Um, to Anyway, so... I think that, but I do think, I just feel it in the air. Maybe they just, I was, yesterday I was listening to the radio to Kaya FM and the day before to Metro FM and they were just so sweet. Like, I think it's really sweet how Lindiwe Sisulu's um, very normal kind of article about how colonialism is terrible and and African, like, black solidarity is, is the key to solving all our problems. I mean, that is every discussion document I've ever read by the ANC. That's most of the opinion pieces that I get, that I see uh, ANC cadres write in 
uh, newspapers when I've debated ANC um, politicians. Uh, when and I've had that opportunity, this is not an unusual talking like point. Jesse Duarte, I was on a stage with her at the end of last year on ENCA for like an hour long thing with a couple of others. This was completely what she said. This, there's nothing more uh, boring in a way than an ANC elite person saying that the problem is that the rule of law is white mischief. It's white magic. It's it's uh, it's white lightning, um, and what you need is 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 black Ubuntu. Uh, some some weird and yet all the usual like slightly pink team black suspects um of all races you know our, our wonderful uh, melange of of neo marxist race nationalists um have come out and condemned her uh i think it's i uh, Look, it would be nicer if President Ramaphosa fired her because she's basically breaking her <laughs> of office. He's not going to do that. But it is uh, unusual. You know what, to me, yeah, you know what, to me, it, it feels And it's more like of that. the good news. It just feels like maybe I had too much holiday, Nicholas. But I do It feels feel like they just, they just swapped out. They took Ace Makashule and he was like a light bulb and he was starting to go a bit dim. And they just screwed <laughs> him out. And then they put in the Lindua Sisulu light bulb. And she's like, now now at, at, at cocktail parties, you're going to hear, well, look, Cyril isn't what... I, uh, I expected him to be right. He's he's not he's not going to save South Africa, but at least he's keeping us safe from Lindy Wissasulu. Did you see that thing she wrote? All oh, right. As long yeah. as we have Cyril, he'll protect us from her. And that's it. Just to me, feels a little bit like we're we're seeing the same movie, but like it's like a Die Hard two, Die Harder. You know, R E T two, R E T harder. Die. <laughs> it is so hard. Yeah, no. And I just, just to be clear, just to remind everyone, because this is a, a long-standing bugbear of mine, the RET faction equals the ANC. <laughs> Radical economic transformation is a term that has been used within the ANC since the 90s. It describes a series of policies that were too radical for Mandela or Mbeki. Those poli and, as it turns out, Jacob Zuma. Those policies were national health insurance, basic income grant, um, expropriation without compensation uh, and a rearrangement of how the court process works. <laughs> this is all happening under Cyril Ramaphosa. He has pushed to change the constitution and he will now get an EWC if he can through the expropriation bill. He has tried for the first time in earnest to get national health insurance. Um, he has de facto achieved a basic income grant uh, for, uh, you know, 29 million South Africans are on grants. Um uh, no, no one has done more for the RET faction in terms of the policies that it laid out uh, than Cyril Ramaphosa. He is a, he's an excellent, he delivers on RET more than anyone else. <laughs> um, so if you want to talk about the RET faction, then you should be talking about the faction run by the Ramaphosa uh, elite, <laughs> uh, you know, trademark. That's what RET stands for. Um, right. If you want to talk about the people that, if you want to talk about faction fighting, that's not about policy. If there was a policy fight within the ANC, if there was like a group of ANC guys saying, hey, look, let's not have an NA, NHI because look how poorly we, we manage the COVID plague. Uh, let's not do expropriation without compensation through the expropriation bill or through an amendment to the constitution. If you can find any ANC people that, that, that spoke in a more centrist direction about any of those things, um, then they could be in the in the non-RET faction. Uh, and I think Tito Mbaweni was... In the non-RET faction, in a lot of ways. Look where and I think if there's anyone left in government who who might possibly qualify as Ramavlamola, although you know, <laughs> there's it's not 
not great because he's not he's not amazing. Dude, I don't understand this. He has said outrageous things. He has said outrageous things, but he has. Let me put it this way: he has been far more unequivocal as far as I as far as I've heard in defense of various constitutional things and the judiciary and stuff than other ANC people have. That's why he has this better reputation. He said some whack stuff, sure, but at least he's kind of like conceptualized no. the idea that you need to say that the Constitution is a good thing. Yes. No, he does say the Constitution is a good thing, and he tries to stand up for judicial, judici- uh, for judiciary independence, uh, which is his role as, as the... But I mean, Yes, I know, I know it's the bare minimum, <laughs> but it's better than... It's, it's always, you know, compared to what, right? Compared to what? Okay, fair enough. My, okay, so, but the 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 Sisulu thing i hear you that um that ramaposa gets contrasted with the uh, whatever the latest instances of some right, and you can race see nationalist that, marxist diatribe and whoever sort of the, embodies the media the media is already risk. lining up the the the, the goalposts right the battle for the soul of the anc ramaposa versus lindy wissasulu yeah but but in a way it also feels to me a little bit more who cares than before well, the um, sequel is often not as good as the original. <laughs> and partly because I think a lot of people that, I mean, Lindivis Asunas thing was all about decolonization. Five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, 2015, you couldn't say, 2014, in fact, you couldn't say any decolonization good, colonialism bad. Someone burns down a library in the name of decolonization. You say, well, maybe they've lit fire to the wrong building but like they still have the right impulse right you know people were giving a sympathetic reading to burning down libraries to stoning security guards nearly murdering uh two uh of them to destroying uh public property to attacking the police all kinds of stuff is decolonization good uh anything we need peace we need to protect public property so that like the money that could go to students doesn't have to get sent into rebuilding from rebuilding the freaking library yeah. or or upping the the security uh, annual cost and all this kind of stuff that sounds very colonial because the other side says you're colonial that's bad it was as simple as that and i know because i've gone i look i read it at the time and i've read it since when it was more dispatched when it's easier to do so in the cold aftermath and it is outrageous to read <laughs> i mean it's, it's it's very sad right now in the says uh, decolonization, good, colonialism, bad. And Eusebius MacKaiser says, well, honey, it's more complicated than that. That is new. That is different. And maybe this can be a segue to my best difference. I think the best good news of the year is the only thing that's, that the only real good news that hasn't been shared or talked about pretty much anywhere that I can find excepting for an episode of the Daily Friend Show. But the I have is very good at breaking news as we, uh, or not at breaking news, but at breaking trains. <laughs> yes. So we I, 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 I just want to, this is about the Zonda report. I think the Zonda report is amazing. Part one. And I say this as the only guy that I know of that like really did not like the Zonda commission. When I say the only guy, I, let me just, uh, hold myself back i did have some allies in the jacob zuma foundation uh who thought well, and the IRR. <laughs> well some in the irr but no mostly people in the irr disagree my point my point against the zonda commission which i have said before just to reiterate 
is that it took away the plea bargain uh, option for Jacob Zuma. So I would have happily traded Jacob Zuma gets a get out of jail free card uh, for putting giving evidence to put a thousand people currently in government behind bars. Um, this would have been like the American gangster uh, trade with Frank Lucas, who was a, who was a top gangster. And then he actually still went to jail, but he gave enough information to put like hundreds of police in New York behind bars, or it'd be like some of the trades that were made when H when Bush senior was president and thousands of bankers were put behind bars, uh, in a, in a sort of series of mortgage, uh, defrauding scandals. Okay. You can put a thousand people behind bars. If you could put a thousand like directors, general procurement officers, all of the people whose you know faces we've seen come and go across the TV screens when the Zondra commission was, was happening, if they could all be in orange overalls after proper prosecution on the back of evidence that Jacob Zuma could have produced, he could have sat down in Kandla quietly and, uh, and had his retirement. In my opinion, I also found polling uh, from commissioned by ENCA, conducted by Mark Data with a very large sample size in 2017, which found 80% of South Africans were very happy, 85% were very happy for Jacob Zuma to uh, get a plea bargain if he would put uh, guilty parties still in government behind bars. Uh, that was by far the most popular option. Uh, 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 and that was, it was even slightly higher than the proportion of people who thought he was guilty. You know, it's like 82% thought he was guilty, but 85% thought it would be... <laughs> Could if you got a plea bargain. Okay. The problem with Zonda Commission is that he goes up. If he went up and spoke, then he would either speak and then um, not answer the questions, honestly. You know, say, I can't remember. Why did this person do this? Uh, was it on my order? I'm not sure. Or it wasn't. And then he can't later say that it was under his orders and that it was for this corrupt purpose and so on uh, because then he'd be contradicting himself. Uh, both times under oath, and that makes him an incredible witness, and therefore someone that you can't base a prosecution on. Well, yeah. In the alternative, he tells the truth, but then he no longer has anything to, you know, he tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but then he's got nothing to bargain with anymore, so he's not actually going to do that. Uh, so That's I think the Zona Commission was like a perfectly designed way to defang the best uh, prosecuting chance that we ever had, which was to extradite the, the Guptas, make them come to South Africa, and they will have kept very good books and records and get them to turn over all of those details. I don't care if those guys go to jail. They could have put a 1,000 current government officials behind bars, do that, and then you kick them out of the country, deny them a visa like Novak Djokovic, and get Jacob Zuma to help us. <laughs> you, give, you give the Zuptas a plea bargain for putting 5,000 people behind bars. It could have worked, but not once you have... The Zonda reports. That's why I didn't like it. But once you got into it, you got to deal with it. And so we have. And I read uh, enough of it to get to page 796. And that's where the good news lies. I wonder. <laughs> so it's a, it's a little bit of the way in, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's going to take some, some patience. And it's certainly, almost certainly going to not be read by, you know, 99.9% .9 of. People in the media, never mind the general public. Correct. But I don't know. I wonder, I suspect that a lot of people in, I suspect that uh, Adrian Basson, for example, knows exactly what I'm about to say. And he's the chief editor of the largest newspaper in the country. Um, and I don't think he would be surprised to hear this at all. Uh, but it hasn't appeared in his newspaper yet because i don't think he thinks it's very relevant but maybe i'm casting terrible aspersions i've got no reason i've got no factual basis to say that so let me let me just say that i think that the very big news organizations do have enough staff that the whole thing gets read um uh 
Uh, nevertheless, this has somehow completely slipped through the cracks. So what happens on page 795 is we get to section G, which is headlined intractable problems. Some of the problems which continue to affect public procurement have their origin in the legislative design. Others emanate from the ravages of state capture or the systemic weaknesses which facilitated state capture. Dealing with these problems requires a concerted effort and a fixed determination, always acknowledging that many of these matters should have been addressed years ago. Okay, so this is a slightly confusing introduction because it's saying these problems are intractable, which means you can't solve them. Uh, but then finishes by saying, you know, we must deal <laughs> yeah, with these problems with a concerted effort. A little bit confused. Right. But really what it's saying is there is a systemic weakness which facilitated state capture, which originated in the legislative design. Next headline, quoting from the Zondo report, problems in the legislative design. Difficulties in interpreting the legislative mosaic. The sheer number of acts and regulations which address procurement issues makes it very difficult for conscientious officials to get a clear understanding of what is required for them. Dot, dot, I think Helen Zillas made that point very specifically a lot, that, for example, the Municipal Financial Management Act makes governance really difficult because everything has to have 14 million forms and there are so many things that are not allowed. Exactly. Indeed, I, can, I, I, I quote... It should be noted that in explaining the high incidence of procurement irregularities, Mr. Matebula attributed as much as half of the problem to misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the applicable rules and half to intentional abuse. So, you know, the, and, and he explains, he's, he's built this up by detailing very many instances, particularly with reference to the following. One of the fundamental difficulties inherent in our procurement legislation is to reconcile the particular objectives separately addressed in sections 217.1 and 217.2 of the Constitution. By the way, 217 of the Constitution is like the last section of the Constitution. So we're talking about the last section of the Constitution on the last page of the Zondo report. Okay, this is where it gets good, people. Don't give up on it. <laughs> <laughs> the ending is the best bit. This is what really matters. Section 217 of the Constitution obliges an organ of state and any other institution identified national legislation when it seeks to contract for goods or services to do so in accordance with a system which is fair, equitable, transparent, competitive, and cost-effective. To paraphrase, you got to get the best bang for your buck when you're using the people's money. Back to quoting. Section 217.2 does qualifies section 271 and provides that section 271 quote does not prevent the organs of state or institutions referred to in that subsection from implementing a procurement policy providing for a categories of preference in the allocation of contracts and b the protection of advancement of persons or categories of persons disadvantaged by unfair discrimination well, end quote what must however be made clear is that because of the injustice emanating from the past Section 217.2 is critically important. Now, I'm going to add, as a private parenthetical, what Zondo fails to mention is that Section 217.3 was amended in the Second Amendment to South Africa's Constitution to say you have to take into account Section 2. So let's just zoom out 
what's happening here? The constitution says when the government is procuring stuff, when it's putting out tenders and all that kind of stuff, when it's hiring employees, it's got to get the best bang for buck. That's one thing. And it's got to get, uh, it can't let that get in the way of, of, uh, racial trans of, of, of race-based politics pro-black right. politics back to quoting this the potential he then says the potential for what must however be made clear okay the potential for misunderstanding is increased by the fact that the pfma and the mfma the provincial financial management act and the municipal financial management act collectively address the requirements of 217a no, it's the Procurement Financial Management Act and the Municipal Financial Management Act. Leaving the correction of the disparities of the past to be dealt with in separate legislation under the PPPFA, which is the Public Procurement <laughs> Provider Financial Management Act. This uncoordinated approach leaves critical question unanswered. This is the critical question, ladies and gentlemen, coming from Raymond Zondo, which you will not hear anywhere else. And it is the critical question. Is it the primary intention of the Constitution to procure goods at least cost? Or is the procurement system to prioritize the transformative potential identified in Section 217.2? There is an inevitable tension when a single process is simultaneously to achieve two different aspirational objectives. Undoubtedly, these things can't be intention. What are you talking about? There's no way that BE and good service delivery. <laughs> you shut your filthy mouth and listen to Raymond Zonda. Undoubtedly, I'm quoting directly, there are cases, some of which may well be high-value tenders, in which one or other of these two objectives must be preferred. And it is in such cases that the legislation fails to give guidance. Undoubtedly, there are such cases. In the view of the Commission, the failure to identify the primary intention of the Constitution is unhelpful, and it has negative repercussions with this delicate and complex choice has to be made by default by the procuring official. Ultimately, in the view of the... Con okay, so he's identified the problem. The problem is that you've got two things you're supposed to do, and it's very confusing. Which one is supposed to come first? Okay, and I'm just reading the final summary. He has mentioned section 217 1 and 2 of the constitution about 68 times across this document and i've gone through all of those references and almost all of them are where he has dealt with some procurement officer like uh yake noquini for example at saa who follows a directive uh maybe emanating from jacob zuma maybe emanating from Buane, um no what was her name duty mayeni at SA, yes. Uh, sorry, saying there must be a thirty percent set aside for black-owned businesses, which was then used to out uh, to to muscle out some businesses, including one that was sixty percent black-owned, uh, in order to get uh, uh, what was described as authentic blacks uh, to get the chance to 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 get to yes, they're, money. They're, am I proving our point that this is a, there's a lot of uh, a fig leaf in this? There's situation. a lot of fig leaf. Oh, that's very nice. Uh, <laughs> very, very, very polite. There's a lot of horse radish. Uh, <laughs> um, so the thing is, he keeps going back to saying what was the legislation which gave this person some reason to think that they had a leg to stand on. And then what was the constitutional provision which gave this person a, a, a reason to think they had a leg to stand on. And it keeps coming back to 217.2. You can trace almost every nasty thing that's happened back to section 217.2 under an interpretation under some law, which some procurement officer has then taken advantage of to, to eat the money. 
as my, as my good friend says. So he's laid this all up, and now he's made it very analytically clear. And then he says, how, how do we solve the problem? In the view of the commission, I'm quoting again, the failure to identify the primary intention of the constitution is unhelpful. Sorry, I've already said that. Ultimately, in the view of the commission, the primary national interest is best served when the government derives the maximum value for money in the procurement process and procurement officials should be so advised. The same problem is encountered when a choice must be made between the competing virtues of localization and lower cost. Again, the view of the commission is that the legalization should make it clear that in such a case, the critical consideration is value for money. Now, this is not just his opinion. This is also the plain language of the constitution, which says the primary interest is in basically value for money and that this shouldn't get in the way of race-based preferencing, which is to say, if two parties are selling exactly the same good with the same reliability at the same price to be delivered at the same time, and one of them is white and one of them is black, the government should be allowed to say we would rather buy from the black person. But if whitey is selling it for five rand less, then you've got to buy from whitey according to our constitution because you're getting the best value for money. And that is the primary consideration. The idea that, that they are sort of equal, that there's a bit of a trade-off. No, there's the primary consideration. And if two parties meet that consideration equally, then you can take a secondary consideration into account. Now, to me, that is not ideal. I prefer non-racialism, plain and simple. But this is the constitution. And Zondo, as it stands, I would like the constitution to be amended. And Zondo is a deputy chief justice who is sworn to defend the constitution. And as a justice is obliged to interpret it as it stands, it's for legislators to change the law. It's not for justices to change the law. So I think given those limitations, given the strictures of the constitution, he is going as far as he can reasonably go. And in fact, he's going the whole way to say the systemic essence of the problem of state capture is a series of confusing laws, which mean half the people are half the time breaking the law without even really knowing what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, and that the other half the people can take advantage of that fog of 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 that miasma and 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 as a shield, uh, as an invisibility uh, cloak to then go and break the law and eat the money. And that the source of this confusion is that we've got two conflicting things, things that will undoubtedly conflict. And that therefore they must be given a priority. And that the commission believes the priority must clearly be value for money for the people's money. Value for the people's money. And this is also, as it happens, what the Constitution says. There could be no more succinct. Like, I've taken a while to unpack this because I really believe in it. And I, I want to give you the best chance of remembering well, it. And if you want to, you can go here's, read. Here's the other reason why it's taken you and 96. To, to unpack is because it's written like a, as, as our colleague Saragon says, it's written like a judgment. And therefore, is impenetrable to many people, especially those who have finally managed to get to seven, page 700. You know, maybe you haven't had your coffee, you get there. And this, the true implications of what's being said here might not entirely dawn on you unless you're really thinking about it. But it is explosive. This is a dynamite yes. stick in the mouth of the ANC, in the, in, the, in, the, in the very spirit of it. I mean, it, unfortunately, the ANC was in a really good position uh, in, the, in the 90s. And in, uh, anyway, the ANC has married itself to a BE forever policy. 
again, if you want to talk about RET faction, name me one ANC guy who's saying to Ramaphosa who said BE must get more aggressive now. Who's the ANC guy who's saying, no, 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 dude, you're a billionaire. Your children are not previously disadvantaged. Let's take it easy on the BE thing. Let's like, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's listen to those people who's like, let's at least hear out the argument that if we go for merit, that's going to be the best way to attract investment and that's going to be the best way to grow the economy and that's going to be the best way to reduce unemployment, uh, which is overwhelmingly hurting poor black people. Let's at least hear them out rather than just double down on this ideological position. Who's saying that? No one that I know of. So unfortunately, this is an indictment, uh, not just of a, of a policy, but also of a party that has married itself to this policy. Uh, but it is coming from the most authoritative judicial source in the land. Um and and I think any red-blooded uh, classical liberal, anyone who believes in this in this South African project, who who believes that we that we do best when we do it together, uh, without cherry-picking melatonin uh, or, or, or or you know superficial features to be the basis upon which we judge one another's character, that 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 we really are uh, citizens in a ship that needs to change course. Uh, I think that I think that this is just about the best news. This is to me even more exciting than the ANC dropping below 50% in the national elections. Um, because I suppose because it gives me some it gives me some hope that that uh, in an institution which I was losing right, a lot because, of because because on the commission in particular and the judiciary in general. The, yeah, the mainstream has really aggressively put up Zondo as, as you said, you know, this great important thing that's going to help solve the problems of the last decade, all of that. And here it is, Zondo damning BE. And now it's kind of difficult to say, well, yeah, you know, the Zondo Commission, that thing that we said was going to fix all the problems, except we must ignore it completely when it talked about BE. Because that no, there it's not. There it was wrong, but everywhere else it was right. Like all the stuff about Zoom and everything. And and it's it's not like the you're exactly right, dude. And let's draw a contrast. So uh, Prince Mashele, for example, uh, and Justice Malala, but especially Prince Mashele, likes to point out that the ANC does have some very proper intellectuals and some good spirited people. Uh, that are you know smart and 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 have the right values and 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 try and push the party in the right way and write these policy documents, and and the best example of that is the Kahlema Motlante report. And one of the things that the Kahlema Motlante report said was, for example, that the constitution is not the issue getting in the way of, of land reform, uh, and that and that it it said. Uh, Market-based compensation maybe is a problem, but it's not nearly as bad a problem as corruption is. Now, I can tell you, having gone to a lot of conferences and being part of a few debates, uh, uh, that that was used against the ANC um, when it adopted the policy to try and change the constitution, uh, and that it did hurt it, the, that Kahlema Motlante's authority was pinned behind another idea, and, uh, and so it mattered. But it didn't matter that much. This was Prince Mashele's point. It didn't matter that much because who had ever really heard of the Kahlema Motlante report? Who had watched any of it happen on TV? <laughs> who, with whose, with whom's, with whose life had it had it truly integrated? The Zondo Commission is completely the opposite. This thing is generations bold and beautiful, Muvango, 
uh, and Isidingo all wrapped <laughs> into one. Dude, this thing is the grandest soap opera in South African history that every every South African with a TV or radio station has heard about ad infinite. Uh, so there is no way to put the genie back in the box. This is clearly authoritative. Now the question is, how hard is the media or gatekeepers of information and taste going to work to repress the key finding right. on the systemic analysis of what it is that Zondo says is going to get us right back in the same hole if we don't fix this problem with the law? And I believe that they are going to try hard. I believe that many editors... Lackeys have read this and have passed it up the line and that it has been wondered about. And I believe that it is going to be up to us uh, to, 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 to put the message out, but that it will not be up to only us because I believe that there are many people just like Justice Sondo or Deputy Chief Justice Sondo who occupies, occupy real positions of power who see exactly what he sees. And who and who appreciate that it's been uh, that 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 things have changed on the ground, uh, distributions of wealth. You know, as we've often talked about, the black top ten percent, according to Stats SA, out earns the white top ten percent by a factor of two and a half, goes up to a factor of three, if you use the broader definition of the word black. Um, that the that the white elite is not uh, monopolizing the the heights of of economic power and certainly not of political power. So that that's a that's the last war. People who are fighting that war, fighting the last war. People who want to fight the problems that are really getting in South Africa's ways today, uh, see see a very different set of problems. See, I think what Zondo sees, which is that the problem today, one of the deep problems today, is that we won't look at each other eye to eye. That we're still looking at each other skin to skin, and that is not a way to make moral judgments. That is not a way to make collaborative trust. Uh, and the law is getting in the way of that. The law is creating confusion, and it's really only good for people who want to eat the money. Right. So I, right. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. That's oh, a good thing to be thrilled about. I think you're exactly right that uh, we may be sitting on a sort of narrative-changing moment here. I also feel that the discussion about uh, cater deployment may be on a similar threshold. I know that the DA has certainly felt that because they've managed to get a hold of these minutes of the Cater deployment meeting. Heaked by the Zonda Commission, by someone in the yes. <laughs> yes. Now, now that's, that's you know, this is one of those shadowy things where I think, you know, all of us critics of the ANC, we knew kind of what was being said there, right? Like it's not a mystery to us. But there was always this kind of, vagueness about it. You know, the ANC was always open about cater deployment, but there was always, when pressed about it, they do the Mott and Bailey thing. So the Mott and Bailey argument is you have a very aggressive forward position, and if you're ever attacked, you go back to the, the inner position, which sounds much more reasonable, and you say, no, no, this is what we really believe. So you can kind of see that, I think, in Cyril's testimony at the Zondo Commission, where he goes, no, no, uh, you know, we, we didn't really talk about messing about with the judiciary. It was just in passing. And, you know, we just talked about where the vacancies were. We didn't talk about where we're putting people. Uh, but then the minutes come out and it turns out that the that the meeting uh, is is saying, yeah, no, we need to put this judge here because it's very important that we put this judge here and that this is a good judge here. So it's, 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 it's peeled away that sort of sham nice version of uh, cater deployment that the ANC is always hidden hidden behind when when attacked 
Uh, and of course, the other the other explanation, the other thing is, oh well, you know, um, uh, the 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 U.S. does this as well, where they appoint they appoint people politically, right? They appoint judges, they appoint civil servants based on political alignment. Although I think that is a misrepresentation because the U.S. Firstly, it has changes of government all the time, which definitely makes a difference. Uh, secondly, there's a lot more positions that are elected rather than appointed in general. And thirdly, you know... Which is to say directly elected. For example, the, right. the National Prosecuting Authority, Shamila Batoy, in America would have been elected. Yeah, in an, in, in, in an in election. State. Yeah, right. In each state, <laughs> and that's, you would have... That's a, actually why some American states have pretty whack laws because the best way to get elected is to promise that you're basically going to crucify anyone you're who's even crucify killing the, the people that are eating Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, th th those definitely are big differences. And also, you know, the ANC has clearly pushed this principle to its absolute limit because it's appointed people who as far as we can tell, don't really know how to do their jobs. And that the sole criteria was that they had a, a, a kind of party loyalty. You know, uh, Trump's Definitely. judges, yeah. what's, what's very interesting about so many of the ones he appointed was that they ruled against him when he brought election lawsuits, uh, showing that any sort of criticism we might be able to make that he was packing the judiciary was just not true. Now, you can probably say that a little bit for the ANC, but there's certainly some judges, and I, I think to someone like John Schlopper, where you yes. kind of go, uh, oh. hold on a minute. <laughs> Something is not quite right here. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. I think that most South Africans are much more irritated by the outcomes of failed service delivery. And now what's happening is it's becoming easier and easier. The, because we're a politically yeah, if, if, naive if, country, if, when things go wrong, you find a scapegoat, you blame the scapegoat. It's always about personnel. It's never about policy. But as the then you get the sequel. Then you get Fast and Furious 7. Then you get uh, <laughs> Die Hard episode 32. And it's like the same story. And we still have to believe it does become a soap opera. You keep bringing these people back to life that died. And then you have to crucify them all over again. It's and like, it's and like people start connecting mind. the dots. They're like, if, something if the, is deeper the, is going on. If yeah. the electricity technician was put there because he's an ANC cater, all they care about is that, you know, he fixed the damn electricity. <laughs> and too often in South Africa, he doesn't fix the electricity. <laughs> and that's what's really binding them. And I think, but I think the cater deployment story has been landing harder because people have, because people are, 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 are more sick and tired of the alternative personnel story or scapegoating apartheid. And party scapegoating apart, I'm also feeling, and maybe, and I think this could be a January thing. I mean, I think it is going to go backwards and forwards as it often does, but this feels like an extremely good January. Um, it does feel like uh, at the moment, COVID is playing the best role that it could possibly play perversely in our politics, which is to be a national trauma post apartheid that we can all kind of uh, share some, some horror stories about and some funny stories about um, so that not every historic issue goes back to 19... 89 or 1990 94 it goes back a little bit some of the deeper strike stuff to the year 2000 the flip side of this is the good the, the good news the release that i think south africans are feeling the, the sense of hope and optimism there's just 
no one is claiming that win for the government. The last waves, when we exited wave one, two, and three, there was always claims of like, oh, the government lockdown saved us. In this occasion, they ended the curfew <laughs> even while cases were spiking because they realized there's just no one still, no one believes that these stupid curfews are actually working in South Africa. They might work also, but no one believes they're working here. Um, so I don't think anyone feels grateful and a minority got vaccinated. So, you know, not that many people feel grateful to the government for saving them from the worst of the plague. We just have an unusually uh, concrete reason to feel a little bit better about the year coming that has nothing to do with, oh, we're so grateful to government. In fact, when government comes up or the ANC comes up, it's like, well, petrol, gas prices are going up, petrol prices are going up, <laughs> uh, inflation's going up, jobs are still new, flat. There was, a, there was a news story today that in February um, they're expecting petrol prices to spike again. So as our warning to listeners. So this, and, and anyway, so I do think I, I, in, in South Africa's news cycles, it doesn't happen very often that the good news has no correlation. When the Springboks win, it's the government's fault, even though the government... I mean, it's the government's to the government's credit, even though the government tried to stop the Springboks from going because there weren't enough black players, even when, you know, the quota was met and when it wasn't. You know, it's like they 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 generally because the ANC has conflated itself with the state and the state has conflated itself with the nation and a sense of national pride. If anything, if the weather's nice, somehow some credit ends up going to ANC. I'm not seeing that at the moment. I think that puts them in a very weak position. I do think that that means right now, and this is the scary side of this, right now it is for the opposition to lose 2024. Yes. <laughs> I think the ANC can do it. I think it really can do its best. It can keep Ramaphosa. It can get a couple of uh, scapegoat uh, prosecutions. Um, it can't address the key systemic analysis of, of the Zondo Commission, so it can never claim all that much credit out of one or two little prosecutions. It's never going to put a 1,000 people behind jail and never going to do a probably impressive number because it's messed up its opportunity to do that. Uh, it can do its damnedest. If the opposition does its job, there will be an opposition coalition in Parliament in 2024. If the opposition, however, does not do its job, uh, then then you've got a different story. But I think it would be really good for this country to experience a peaceful transition to power. I think it would be a useful... You know, there's a standard political science term, you know... Um, I think you're putting it democracy. too softly. It would, it would be, I think, the most important thing to happen in this country since 1994. Correct. Having your Correct. second transition of power is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you really aren't a democracy until you've changed government. Changing government is the advantage of democracy. This whole the people choosing, I'm not so sold on that, but the changing of government every couple of years, that is great. And the fact that the government always has to be scared of getting chucked up, that is great. Correct. That's and until what I we do so, that, we're, yeah, we're going to be a bit of a basket case. <laughs> this is, dude, and this is, this is like, this is axiomatic political science, right? This is the right. definition of a robust democracy is you've had two or three transitions of power. Until then, you're a, you're a, you're really a post-liberation uh, experiment. Yeah, you're halfway there. Yeah, and uh, which, which is kind of an, you know if you think about birth, if like the head's out but the body's still in, it's it's twenty five years <laughs> yeah, is yeah, a like, long time. Congratulations, like, it's a boy. While well, the sort of heads uh, coming out, they're screaming uh, and blood and everything. And you're like, no. get it out, get it all the way out, get it dressed, get it fed, get it like. Let's see it. Yeah. Let's see exactly. it earn some money. You know, let's see it pay some taxes now. 
Come on. Right, right, it's been right. 25 years. Let's see it. <laughs> you know, you don't... <laughs> You don't do it prematurely with birth, so we certainly shouldn't with uh, with democracy. Anyway, we're coming up for an hour now. Uh, so do you want to see if we can finish at the hour mark? Do you have any recommendations? No, I think I, I think let's let's push let's push it a little not much past the hour, but just a little bit. Um right. because we did talk about the gas prices thing, and I want to say a lot of things not the ANC's fault. Uh the petrol price situation is a consequence of a return to business around the world. Um, mm. There was a strange, you know, the pandemic kind of uh, started. It was the first big thing to happen after to the markets. Yeah. After I remember the that brief, Russia... brief little period where the prices of oil barrels for, what is it, Brent crude was negative. Futures. For Brent, Brent crude futures were negative. Brent crude futures, yeah, were negative. <laughs> the, the idea of not having to buy space to store it. With all the storage capacity being used up and no one being particularly interested in using it was becoming nightmarish. Uh, the actual price, I don't think, ever dropped below $12. For, 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 for. But, you know, it was crazy. It was crazy. And, and just $12 before... $12 for before a barrel. Compare yeah. that to bottled water. Yeah. And part of that was a consequence of, of, of uh, Russia getting into a price war with Saudi Arabia. But we say price war, maybe it would be better to say you know, competitive market forces breaking the cartel. No one would ever say a nice thing about Russia, but that is basically what it did. It drove oil prices ah, down. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and I have covered this point. I won't go over too much again, but, you know, the gas price thing is very closely connected to international gas prices, which are somewhat being ameliorated by the Americans putting gas on ships and sending it across the oceans. But they, it just turns out that that's not nearly as cheap. as Well, that's also not... That's also not doing so great right now because the American government, at the, the current administration, is pretty hostile to new gas exploration, mining, and I mean Biden. He he subsequently went back on it, but he did promise at one point during the election he was going to ban fracking entirely. Indeed, uh, then, indeed. Yeah, and, and then he went back on that. <laughs> he has very much come back on that, but Keystone got, got a little foiled. But there's still so, yeah, there's still quite a lot of opposition to to it in. In the administrative state, you know, in the in the administrative the exports of, have gone up hugely because of the of the tension between uh, the Russians and the Germans, who have a new administration which is far more hostile to Russia, and so the approval for the Nord Stream pipeline, which Russia built to go from Russia through the Baltic Ocean to Germany as a way to export crude oil without going through Ukraine. We talked all about this before the end of last year. One of the things we were bragging about is that we were talking about the Russian troops amassing on the border of Ukraine because of this energy crisis uh, and the Russians were trying to force open the thing and the Europeans sort of trying to bite the bullet and go through a very expensive cold winter uh, with not that much Russian gas uh, in order to try partly to appease the Greens who don't like uh, gas and also to appease the the NATO expansionists who think that uh, Ukraine really should just be part of this alliance to continue to isolate Moscow, and those who 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 who, could, who are kind of anti-authoritarians think Russia is not a good democracy and so you shouldn't be buying from it and you should be supporting Ukrainians. You know these this coalition of of sort of I think sweet liberals and um, kind of. So hangover, Cold War, anti-Russian people and Greens um, have, uh, have are on one side of this geopolitical tension and on the other side is uh, a pretty ruthless democratically elected president uh, who uh, presides over a country which doesn't 
tick all the boxes in terms of classical liberal freedom, that's for damn sure, um, and who definitely gets some substantial part of his support out of uh, a kind of jingoist nationalist um, uh, militant attitude. So what's the upshot of that going to be? I think in the sh I, I, yeah, I, I, I think Putin's way too smart to invade Ukraine. It's always been a question of uh, uh, yeah, it's, how hard it's going like, to take the bluff. There, but there was a moment, yeah, there was a moment where I thought the Russians might like it were about to invade Ukraine, and then it just sort of kept on being a threat. You know, Russia warns, and when you've seen Russia warns enough times, you kind of start to think, well, I mean, you've kind of got the Casas Belli now, right? So yeah. Why are you waiting unless yeah. you're not going to do anything? If they were going to I do mean, it, they would have done it like Georgia. They would have done it going into yeah, a pretty quickly, or, quickly or, or before when they grabbed Crimea, right? They did it without guys in uniform. They just went and grabbed it as quickly yeah. as they could. Yeah. Uh, so that's how they would the have done it. They might this. have done it. They might have done it. But they, when we were talking about it, but they wouldn't do it. I don't right. think they're going to do it after the American commentariat class has now made a thing out of it because... Right. And also when, when the Ukrainians have had time to dig trenches and load up their anti-tank guns. Exactly. That, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be walking into that. So, so here, the reason I want to bring all of this up is partly to, to be serious about the fact that the ANC is going to face some headwinds that are not its fault and that there are some charges made against it that I don't think... Are, are perfectly correct. For example, the DA's attempt to take Soram Opposer straight to the Concord uh, for perjury. Well, they don't want to take him. They say they want Zondo to take him. Yes. That is not a so good thing to want. It's, it's uh, sort of it's like outsourcing that, you, you know, you, Zondo it's must It's procedurally do it. incorrect. The claim of perjury, because Ramaphosa said we didn't talk about judicial appointments and their things and the minutes show that such discussions were had after he stopped being directly in the meeting this i think it's an important thing to 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 accuse him of and it'd be good to get a to get the earlier minutes he says that there weren't minutes or he can't remember if there were minutes when he was there the thing whatever the point is i think it's a good challenge to take but the concord is the wrong place to take it to. there are just going to be these moments as the momentum builds against the anc hold on where, as, a, as a slight as a slight tangent there sorry Who's people blame the weather on there Yes. Right. Who, and, who's and currently the, the head of the of the Cater Deployment Committee? Do we know? Well, as the head of the party, I think it should. Be okay. Okay. No, but they, they usually have someone who's 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 there. there to anyway, I can't remember. So what Cyril's saying is that <laughs> when he was in charge of the the thing, they weren't organised enough to take minutes. But when someone else took it over, they were organised to take minutes. Yes. Exactly. So he's actually he's he's. <laughs> He's saying that he's not a good He's willing to call himself completely incompetent in order to avoid <laughs> the allegation of perjury. That is what's going on. <laughs> but Leon Schreiber is barking up the wrong tree constitutionally, procedurally. Anyway, it's fine. It's not a very terrible thing. It's just a small little thing. But the bigger reason that I bring up the gas price thing, other than to say there are going to be economic forces globally that are going to be very difficult for badly run countries um, to manage. Hint, hint. Is, is that I think 2022, and a very difficult question to answer, is when and how and whether Washington, let's say NATO, plus the Quad, the Quad is, uh, what's the Quad again, Nicholas? 
Japan, uh, Australia, India, and is and it the Taiwan? Uh, and oh, Taiwan. no, and the US, yeah, and the US. And the US. I, I can't remember exactly. I think it's and the US. That is right. Okay, so the Quad, NATO, all of these alliances that are very worried about the People's Republic of China, the communist-led, Xi's country. The new consensus, the new Cold War II consensus. The grand question, I think, the, the grandest geopolitical question, to my mind at the moment, is how hard the NATO side works to get Moscow on their side and against Beijing. <laughs> I think that the this matters for a couple of reasons. One is just neighborhood. They're in the same neighborhood. Um, they are not a superpower at all. They're a B-League power, Russia, that is, but they have uh, the world's second largest nuclear arsenal and a kind of... Probably the largest, prestige, actually. Probably the largest hangover prestige issue. Um, I think that there's an interesting part... Here's another reason, a political, a domestic political reason that I think this is such an interesting question. If you push the idea of being on side with Moscow and against Beijing in America and in parts of the UK, I think the first pushback is that you must be racist because the the, the, the line would be, you know, both China, both Beijing and Moscow uh, oversee authoritarian regimes that don't respect human rights. Um, so why are you choosing to be nice to the one and not to the other? Well, it must be because the one is predominantly occupied by white people and is led by a white person and the other one is not uh and i think that if you that anyone who who, who supposes me to be kind of making an issue about race that really isn't about race um just reflect for a moment on how american politics has been working um and i have actually seen that accusation made early in the trump era and you think it's a trump in it's a thing that happens on the woke crowd when they're against the Trump crowd. Um, but I do think it, I think that it's, 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 it's sort of strangely tied to deeper ticks, both in the media space and the political space. There's something very irritating, consistently the most irritating thing about the coronavirus pandemic is how majority white countries have refused to look at stories, data or science from majority yellow countries or whatever you want to call it. It's just crazy to me how South Korea, Japan, Singapore have not been role models that people keep talking about Sweden, uh, which did more or less the same thing, but not nearly as well. Uh, why Why not look at the best example, like South Korea? Why look at the not second best example? Well, because they're white. I think that is what's happening. I think that is what has happened. Um, I think that when it comes to international relations, uh, you, you still have some of that old school kind of racial stereotyping basic uh misfiring and you've got the postmodern you've got the pre-modern tribalist thing and you've got the postmodern woke thing uh, i think they both are most inchoate and therefore most you know most unthought through um most disturbing at that level so that's another reason to 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 to, to think the argument might go one way or another um i i kind of get the feeling that the belt that that the idea of encircling of containing china just just this is the first point i made gets a physical representation if it's northeastern northern and northwestern border 
uh, going around Mongolia on both sides is is uh, is a country that is that's actively against its authoritarian push. But finally, and this is the that was the first one. There are only three that the the internal politics of the U.S. and the U.K. if they were to make the move of being against Russia and against China. Um, so that they don't, so that the left or the woke side or whatever doesn't feel like they're being racist. I think that would be a little bubble, a little fly in the ointment, a little bubble in the in the uh, hydraulic tube that would burst at a later point in an unhelpful way. On the flip side, if they are nice to Russia, I don't know how great that is. I don't know what signals that sends to Austria, which has come very close to authoritarian democracy, Hungary, which is basically in authoritarian democracy, Brazil, which is led by an outright homophobe. You know, there is something uncomfortable about the democracies in this world that are clearly more free places to be than Beijing's China, but clearly, you know, different in kind, basically, to, to Germany or South Korea. Or Japan. So, so it's a complicated. It's that in between zone. What do you do with that in between zone? And the and 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 the and the final question is: Is there a way to deal with that that actually makes Russia a better place? Is there a way, in other words, that the West, not a term that I like, uh, but people who think about that term generally, the West for most of recent history has been that side which is against Moscow. Um, will the West figure out that Vladimir Putin is getting to the end of the road? And that if they play their role right, they might assist Russia in uh, maturing as a democracy in much the same way that South Africa would mature as a democracy if we had a peaceful transition in power. You see, you've put this, this long thing here, and I have, I think, <laughs> I, I, I disagree with this idea that Russia, look, I mean, if you could get Russia as against China, you know, oh, okay, you know, in a sort of perfect world, that would be kind of cool, right? That's what they did during the Cold War. They got China against Russia when it was the Soviet Union. Exactly. Now, I think that that was a way overrated move and that Kissinger gets far too much praise for that and it really didn't give the Americans... It created a big problem for the Americans in the future without getting them in a huge amount at the time. So, like, I, 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 I'm skeptical of the, the overall utility to the to the... The, the free world powers if they do that. But also, you know, you talked about Putin getting to the end of the road. So I presume that this alliance with Russia would have to come after him because he's based so much of his identity and his legitimacy and stuff on this kind of defense against NATO, right? He's always talking about like NATO encircling Russia and NATO wanting to destroy Russia and NATO doing this. That the deal you couldn't make nice nice with Putin while he was there, and it would have to be after he's gone. But when you is could, that? right? You could very much. Okay, two answers. One is that I can't remember exactly, but Putin really is. Uh, I think he's done by twenty twenty seven. Um, and the he's not done by twenty twenty seven. And the uh, the way to make nice nice with him, Putin was. George W. Bush's best friend. Uh, the way to make nice nice with him is to stop expanding NATO. I can't personally, I've never understood why NATO. There were two options that made sense to me. 
and this is uh, and to Kissinger, um, and to uh, one option is uh, after the Cold War for NATO to stay exactly where it is and not to expand at all. Uh, or if it expands, for it to ex expand in a genuinely organic way, which which is not about encircling Russia. The other option is uh, for Russia to be allowed to join NATO. So either it doesn't expand at all or it kind of expands and it's really anyone who wants to join the club, Russia, you're very welcome to join the club. That is not the option that is chosen. The option that was chosen is we're going to still treat Russia like a hostile power. Um, and 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 we're not going to invade and occupy it. This is not going to be like Japan or Germany or Italy after World War II. This is going to be like Germany after World War I, uh, where we're not really going to win the war uh, all the way, but we are going to act as if the new thing that's come after the regime change is still our enemy, and thereby create an enemy. Uh, this is the argument being that has long been made by American patriots that are real politic analysts, as well as by the Kremlin. Um, I think it's sort of easy. It's a sign of how silly things often are uh, when it comes to Russia, that, that, that most people would just laugh that off by saying, as you did at the start, okay, here comes the, the, the Russian sympathizer. But, uh, but that the, is, it's the, very the, easy the, to make nice with Putin. Just say Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO. We understand that. No, that's not what the Russians are demanding, interest. though. The Russians it is exactly what NATO, the Russians are demanding. No, the Russians said not even Poland can be in NATO. Does Poland have to be in NATO? Yes. Poland has been the victim of an enormous amount of aggression. I mean, Poland you is in NATO. You cannot tell the polls. Yeah, it is in NATO already. They said it must be out. They said that there must be no NATO forces in Poland. Including, I have not like I have not read that demand, and I did read that, that was demand. that was the that was that was that was the, one of the demands of the Russian government, because the Russians want a sphere of influence, and this is what makes it incompatible. They want a sphere of influence. That sphere of influence goes all the way to the borders of Germany, and that's incompatible with what the West is saying. As long as there's a Poland that is mostly free, although also Poland's a little bit of an imperfect democracy. Um, as long as there's a Poland that's a little bit free, as long as there's a Ukraine that wants to join the EU, it was actually the EU, not NATO, that got Russia to, to start mucking about with Ukraine, it was the desire of the Ukrainians to join the EU, right? They didn't want to join NATO. They didn't talk about joining NATO in a serious way until they got... No, but NATO talked, NATO talked about getting Ukraine to join them. I'm right, not and that, but that was, I'm also, that was also because... That the Russians invaded Georgia, and that you talked about how Putin was no cause was, and effect. You getting the, you sound like one of those people who said, you know, why they bombed the two towers uh, because of what the Americans did in Abu Ghraib. Uh, the 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 invasion of <laughs> Wait, Georgia. Have, have you met someone who said that? Yes, the invasion of Georgia happened after uh, NATO had said directly after NATO had said that both Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, should join NATO. I'm, I'm, I'm directly wrong, immediately. I'm Georgia sure was invaded. That the creation of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which are Russian puppet states that they're using to secretly invade inside Georgia, Georgia, was was prior to prior to that date. No, definitely not. We'll, I'm also uh, reading I'll... through the list of demands and not seeing a demand for Poland not to be included. I'm seeing primarily. Russia wants NATO and its allies to ban Ukraine and former Soviet nations from joining the alliance. 
So when we say former Soviet nations, we're interpreting that to mean uh, well, that the also whole... means that also means Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which are all which former is Soviet much. nations. No, yes. those countries cannot. Those countries have to be a part of NATO because they can't trust Russia not to respect their sovereignty. I agree. They've been down I this agree. road before. I, they have been down this road. The only okay, look. Insofar as there's an irrational demand, an irrational demand is and so much be of to ban Poland from being in NATO since it already is in NATO, uh, or to ban the small little Baltic states. However, the Ukraine is not in NATO. The Ukraine has never made an official application to be in NATO. NATO has been trying to hit on the Ukraine uh, much harder than the Ukraine's been trying to flirt with NATO. And and the primary demand being made is that the Ukraine be banned from NATO. If you want to, if you want to make nice nice with Putin, that strikes me as a concession to make. Uh, and yet, uh, my sense is that this sounds to a lot of people like um, Munich, right? Like like giving a concession to Hitler in the hopes that then he's going to stop um, invading his neighbors. Uh, to get a... To, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm strawmanning you. Maybe you wouldn't strawman me that so, so, so badly as that, and I'm strawmanning you. In, in, no, so, in putting so, that argument so, in your mouth. So, but I think I, it really I, is very I know, different. I think you can... I, I know that you know that Munich is a thing to be avoided, right? And that you would never consciously suggest Munich. But I do think that the consequences of what you're suggesting will result in a Munich-like situation. I do think that Russia... Like, maybe in the 90s, this could have gone a different road. But whatever that, whatever that potential may have been, it's too late now. And that now you've got a revanchist power and regime in Russia that until it changes its sort of state ideology and state propaganda to be more friendly, to, to be less about, you know, we're under attack. We need to, you know, Ukraine is part of glorious, Ukraine is part of uh, glorious mother Russia, all this stuff. Until that changes, you can't trust the Russians not to invade and destroy neighboring countries. And until that problem is solved, until Putin is gone, or until he changes his regime, which I think he could do, because you know he is a he is the most powerful political force in Russia. There's no point. Putin himself is never going to trust the West over China. Putin knows what the Chinese want, which is global hegemony, and he knows that he's probably got a better shot of at least achieving his short-term objectives. In fact, he probably one day wants to see a world where he can play China and the West off of each other perfectly. But until that day comes, it's not now. Uh, he he's always going to side with China over the West. Because he can't, I mean, he himself has talked about how the West is untrustworthy. Why would he ever ally with them when he thinks that they're all treacherous traitors who want to destroy Russia? I, I, I just don't think that geopolitically it's it's feasible um, from his perspective or from the West's perspective. And until these sort of, the, these kind of contradictions of, of the, of, you know, the fact that Putin's regime has a lot more, you know, ideologically in, 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 in line with China in terms of they have a sort of feeling of being wronged by the world. I mean, both China and Russia have that feeling. Both of them feel like they have territory have that needs feeling. to be... that. <laughs> well, in particular, right? They both have this feeling that the West is always trying to involve themselves in their affairs. They always have this feeling that, you know, they've got land that was stolen from them unjustly by some sort of power. In the case of Russia, it's countries like Ukraine or the Baltics. Um, incidentally, I mean, so you know me, I'm a Russia hawk, right? But I don't think 
that the West should like be trying to liberate Belarus or anything like that. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Belarus is a horrible authoritarian regime and I hope that they get democracy one day. But realistically speaking, I think the West should just leave Belarus alone, even if it's causing a little bit of cut. And if Russia wants to basically absorb Belarus, fine, because it's already an authoritarian shithole. But Ukraine is not the same thing. Ukraine is sort of a democracy. The Baltics are definitely democracies. Poland is definitely a democracy, even if it's not a great one. And the West has to kind of stick up for some of those countries. I agree. I wonder what you think. Um, I, I I wonder if your position... It's So I think your position makes sense. If you think that Putin is crazy or that uh, the Kremlin is bound to be run by crazies. If you have... If you take a different, if you ask yourself the following questions, you might wonder whether that's an accurate assessment of the last 10 years. I mean, it seems like the right assessment when you think, wow, there hasn't really been a war in Europe since, uh, well, a few years before that, since the invention of Cossack <laughs> like on the border of Russia, since there were Chechen terrorists invading not only. Uh, you know, Russia's periphery, but also uh, doing terrorism in Russia's heartland. Uh, let's not dwell too much on that because no one gives a stuff about uh, terrorists attacking Moscow in the same way that they care about terrorists attacking London, Paris, or New York. Um, at least no one in the so-called West. But let's let, let's take for granted Russia's legitimate interests in, in uh, stabilizing its peripheral states. Um, uh, let's say that they're doing this, that the deep underlying motive is not an interest in, in security, uh, but rather an interest in uh, imperialism. You, 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 look at, you look at the fact that they have invaded Georgia, they've invented Abkhazia and Abyssinia. Uh, well, that they uh, have what, I'm, what I'm arguing is that Crimea. There is, is there, is there, um, sorry, what am, I, what am I trying to say? Is that there, insecurity for them the only solution to insecurity is imperialism because if they don't expand they're yeah. vulnerable to being destroyed okay you've 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 distinctly distilled what i was what i was going to try and say as the first part this is your point of view is that point of view supported by international relations between russia and the baltic states or between russia and poland in the last 10 years Say again. Silence. <laughs> you say that Russia can only achieve security by imperialism on its border. No, I think that it thinks that. That it thinks that. Is that view supported by its international relations, by its foreign diplomacy, by its moves, vis-a-vis -vis the Baltic states or Poland? Yes. Explain. It's shown extreme hostility towards those countries. It sees that it sees at least the Baltics as part of its legitimate territory that has been stolen from it. What is it? And it has uh, violated the borders of those countries. It has had these sort of incidents where like people, you know, it says, oh, there's a uh, Russian minority in Latvia, for example, is being oppressed. And there is some, you know, there is at least a little bit of justification for that. Uh, they've done internet attacks on, like, the government of Estonia, uh, where I think they knocked out the internet a few times. There was 
a thing recently where I think some Russian soldiers tried to cross the border. I can't remember the exact details of it, but there was a state-engineered border incident. They have very deliberately done that. They've also uh, talked a lot about Poland and how kind of, you know, they've done the sort of Casus Belli justification stuff of saying, oh, you know, Poland losing its land in the Second World War, Poland, we were protecting Poland from the Germans, that kind of stuff. Um, so obviously, because they don't share a border with Poland, it's not been the same thing. But you could even argue that some of this migrant stuff with Belarus, which considering that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Lushenko? Lushenko. Lushenko. That Lushenko is now, I think, more dependent on Putin than he has been in the past. I mean, he's always been a bit of a vassal of the Russians, but now he's like, ever since that big challenge to his legitimacy, I think he's relying on them a lot more. That them attempting to push uh, migrants across Poland's border, which, you know, for Poland is a very big issue because the Poles, let's say, uh, are <laughs> not super welcoming of migrants. <laughs> they are the teensiest bit xenophobic, I think, when it comes to migrants. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that, that is the best and brightest to immigration, right. not into immigration. That, that is a deliberate attempt to mess with the Poles and to cause them as much trouble as possible. Okay, that doesn't sound very much worse than uh, Justin Trudeau spanking Donald Trump over his knee uh, rhetorically because he's trying but to score different points you, in a domestic you, way. Uh, and hold on, and let me qualify this. No, no, no. Let, let me qualify because this is Belarus and not Russia that's exporting the migrants. Uh, and uh, the direct attribution, I think, is a, is a, is a hairy one to make. Uh, I think that uh, it's not. I think in five years, uh, when you talk about Kazakhstan, uh, uh, the the rebellion or the insurrection or the or the civil unrest being put down uh, uh, with by Russian troops right now at the invitation of the Kazakhstani government, uh, you're gonna you're gonna characterize that as um, another example of Russian imperialism. It strikes me as as Russia being no, a good because, neighbor. Because well, I don't know if it's you know invading to keep an authoritarian regime in power. I wouldn't call it great, but I do think that's different because Central Asia really is in Russia's sphere of influence and you're not threatening democratic countries there. None of those Central Asian countries are even vaguely democratic. They're not and threatening. That... I, I, okay, if I, here's my point. My point is I don't see a genuine threat against, against Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania. I don't see a genuine threat against Poland at all. Um, if, the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the demand is that former Soviet states uh, need to be uh, banned from NATO, uh, then there, there is an interpretation according to which I'm entirely wrong. Uh, but having read the foreign minister's uh, uh, speech and, and having listened to some of uh, the uh, uh, UN ambassadors' uh, pleadings on, 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 on CNN from Russia, I... I think that is quite solid and also having looked at the, the context as I see it in the last 10 years, it seems perfectly clear to me that, the, that these are bargaining chips, that the real demand is to ban Ukraine from entering the EU, uh, from entering NATO. And that that is a legitimate concern insofar as expanding NATO to include the Ukraine uh, opens a traditional channel of invasion. Uh, it, it, it is a, it is. A, a move that can only be made, can only be understood to be made as an attempt to contain Moscow and that this is uh, uh, needlessly aggressive and that it will inevitably cause 
uh, an think, aggressive pushback. I think, you're, I think the, you're falling for the Kremlin's Martin Bailey argument here. When they are in bargaining. the wild and We're, not being challenged. No, when they're in the wild and being challenged, they're threatening Latvia's independence. They're mucking about with Poland. They're undermining and the US. internet attack. Can. This sounds like how many times yeah. have you heard about internet attacks? Well, Russia, they boy, they 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 threatened America's democracy. They got Trump elected over Hillary Clinton. Uh, this is a different. This is a different thing. To uh, this is a different thing than some face candidates. This is like inflamed. the whole country's internet being knocked out. Where's your ability to directly attribute that to the Kremlin? Do they have it's pretty easy to find out where cyber attacks come from. They can usually trace them to like the neighborhood. You can trace and, it to the neighborhood. Yeah, Western intelligence knows that the Russian state has a, has a cyber division that is based in that freaking neighborhood. I think I I think that it's I think that it's just about the easiest thing to do in the world. I'm not saying that there aren't uh, nefarious Russian agents. I'm not even saying that there are no nefarious Russian agents that work for the state. I won't even pretend that none of them take orders from Putin. But I think it is the, it, it is the most telling sign of a kind of um, uh, alienated analysis that, that, that one assumes all orders come from the top, that one assumes a level of competence and integration uh, that one would never attribute to states that one either lives inside of or analyzes, as it were, from the inside out. Uh, it, 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 it seems to me extremely yeah, but you'd think, easy. You'd think that in a dictatorship, like the seventh time it happened, that Putin might be like, ha, huh, you know, these yeah. people are going you'd against think someone. Exactly. You'd think someone who works at a classically liberal think tank would not call a place that has regular elections where the leader is clearly the most popular politician in the country would not call that a dictatorship. I mean, I don't want to call it a robust it. democracy because it hasn't Dude. had a peaceful transfer of power, but I wouldn't call South Africa a dictatorship just because I think the ANC government is profoundly corrupt. Yeah, it doesn't kill his critics all the time. How many critics do you think Putin has killed? And when more lost? Than one. <laughs> more than one. That's more, that's more than Ramaphosa, as far as we know. That is not at all true. The ANC assassinated, there are 50 in no, 2060. In 2006, first, yeah, firstly, there's that whole thing. Uh, and, <laughs> and to claim that Ramaphosa did not know of or order any of the people's war stuff, let's leave that to the side. In 2016, no, no, there were 50 there. assassinations within the ANC. In 2017, there were like 35. In 2021, there were at least a dozen assassinations. People assassinated by people in charge for trying to get in charge. Whistleblowers get assassinated in this country. Brett Kevill, the guy outside the parking lot of the the the, the entrance to the to the airport. Lots of people have been assassinated in South Africa. We just, uh, for some reason, Anna Politikovskaya. Is, uh, is more famous to us than, than any of the South African whistleblowers or, 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 or political victims of assassination. I'd be surprised if we could draw any of those back to uh, back to Ramaphosa with any real evidence. Where's the real... Show me a shred of evidence that, that, that Putin ordered the assassination of Anna Politikovskaya or uh, Beret Mirzov or name one of the other people that's been assassinated first and then tell me what the evidence is that Putin made the order. 
You have no evidence. Well enough. I don't know the case well enough. But no, you're just looking at a foreign country, and it's very easy to say that it's an octopus that has one head, and every order comes from the middle. An American could say that very easily about South Africa. Every assassination must come from Ramaphosa. Isn't he in charge of everything? Maybe it's hard for Ramaphosa. I didn't say every assassination. I said that he has tried to assassinate some of his critics. Jacob Zuma, how many of how many of his critics? How many of Zuma's critics do you think were assassinated? You want to say zero? I don't know. Well, I do also think that Zuma attempted to become a dictator. And one of the reasons that he failed was that there was sufficient independence in various other institutions to make that impossible. Not a whole lot of independence, a lot of compromise, a lot of corruption, a lot of rot. But sufficient independence that to call South Africa a dictatorship under Zuma would be ridiculous. You call Russia a dictatorship. Uh, uh, I think this is ridiculous. I think it gives a sense... Uh, uh, of 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 understanding your analysis, and it's a very common analysis, uh, uh, an analysis that is grounded in morality. But dude, you rather I, I, and I a morality that you. becomes clouding. I, your you think I am being fooled into in, into Munich position? Dude, you're, I, you're, I feel you're, like I'm more clear-eyed because I'm not bringing my own moral issues. I've got deep problems with the Russian state, and I'm no, I, 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 to, I, I, yes, I know you're not a, you're, these problems. I know, I, I, I know you're I'm not a not, fan of. I know you're not a fan of Vladimir Putin. It's much less likely that but I'm you are ignorant. That you, are. you are ignorant of of the violations that have occurred against Latvia, against Estonia, against the constant rhetoric that is against their right to exist, against the current constant justifications um, for Russian intervention in those countries. Latvia is constantly attacked by the Russian state as being, you know, you're you're oppressing the the Russian minority in that country. Estonia is constantly having little diplomatic disputes here and there that are of a serious nature, and then they have, you know, uh, uh, attacks on their infrastructure and on their internet there. And it's not, you know, it's not like oh there was a Facebook group that made some ads. It's the whole internet is knocked out kind of stuff. So someone's doing it in Russia, and at the very least, Putin's not doing an awful lot to stop it. Correct, correct. Right, which to me suggests very strongly that it's either on his orders or with his approval. I'm, and I'm not opposing that, but but the difference that I'm trying to draw out is the, is the essential, this, this is the essential claim where I think um, whatever one thinks is, is going to determine one's um, attitudes to some important geopolitical questions for the next decade. Um and certainly for this year, I think this is going to be a special year for this one. If you, on the one hand, think that Russia is kind of just stuck in this rut where its attitude is imperialism as a means of defending or preserving stability on its borders, then you're going to come out with one view. If your attitude is that Russia is much more flexible than that, that in some instances it will send troops, in some instances it will send sternly worded uh, propaganda uh, things, in some instances, it will send flowers and biscuits and roses and, and happiness and love. Um, then you uh, will, will, will come to a very different idea of, of how to treat with it. Um, and, and, and this has been, I mean, this has been a, a deep problem for me thinking about the ANC, for example. Um, when Ramaphosa became president of the ANC, I thought, look, the ANC is flexible, or at least there's a good chance that it's flexible. Right. So it's pushing for national democratic revolution on the one side, but on the other side, it's actually pushing for some good stuff and you can work with it very nicely. Now, it's still my position that there are good people inside the ANC, 
But my position about whether it's stuck in a rut or not has changed. I now think as a party that ANC is stuck and that it is going to keep pushing for race-based Marxism uh, either gently or softly uh, and that when it says the other stuff, it's just uh, making strategic distractions. Uh, and the reason I've changed my opinion is because of some promotions and demotions, uh, some rhetoric and some hard moves. Some evidence has come to bear. I'm trying to say I, I think it is reasonable to sometimes take this position. And certainly anyone who's hawkish on Beijing takes the position that Beige that China's full of wonderful people, but that it's stuck in a rut where it's only going to try and get more and more authoritarian and, and damaging to, to global peace and stability. And so it needs to be treated uh, with some pushback to get it. You need to kind of twist it, twist its arm to get it back in line. I understand that view in domestic politics. I understand that view in international politics. I'm trying to say where our disagreement lies is that I think that's, the incorrect description of recent history when it comes to Russia and therefore an in, in, incorrect prediction of, of, of how it will respond to future action. I don't yes, think that so Russia I, is stuck in a rut. I think it treats uh, I uh, think some countries has, very differently to others. Um, and I think that uh, Putin has, has chosen the rut because it's an easy way to boost his internal legitimacy and popularity. As you say, he's the most popular politician in Russia. And I think part of that is because he has created this environment where Absolutely. Russia is under siege by these foreign interlopers. He, who can no, he didn't create that environment. That is where you're wrong. NATO created that environment. Well, whoever created it, it, it is a perception in Russia. And it is... And, and he's very keen on having this continue because it means that he will stay the most popular president as long as he's seen as the great defender of Russia from these outsiders forever. And okay, that's my final point. Ukraine, my, that no, so you're that, making the political argument. You're making the political argument. Very good argument. Right. They're stuck in a rut because this is what domestic politics dictates. This is why you're wrong. Putin's approval ratings right now are like Ramaphosa's. They're around 60%. Putin's approval ratings a decade ago were at 80, 85%. Much, right. much they started higher. to go down. And then why? What at that time people loved him because he was good for the economy. He knows how good it is to be the president who's relatively peaceful and who's working hand in glove with George W. Bush and is good for the economy. And he knows how nice it is to be the guy who's the enemy of the West and the enemy of all things wonderful, and the economy's not doing so well, but at least he's one of us and he's being solidarity. And he knows which one of those is sweeter and which one of them works best for him personally. I don't think that Russia is stuck in a rut because Putin can't uh, change gears to collaborating with Western partners in a way that lifts sanctions and returns maximum uh, chances of prosperity um, to, to, to his body politic. I think he understands the appeal of that very well. Um, and uh, I, I, so I don't see it as an option his, that's in his hands. He doesn't have those cards to play. He can't make that choice. His, his popularity began to fall, and then the stuff with Ukraine happened, and his popularity went back up for a time. Correct. And that is absolutely a correct assessment. Yes. And that makes me wonder whether the troubles with Ukraine were not at least a little bit because he was thinking, ha, things are starting to turn around on me. The economy is not doing so great. Maybe a little bit of a crisis will remind everyone why they need me. Well, okay. I think, I think the, 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 if, if we're going to try and boil this down to a fact disagreement, I think the fact disagreement is going to be on whether NATO made its overtures to Georgia and Ukraine before Georgia and Ukraine were attacked by Russia. Uh, 
if it if if uh, if if Russia attacked Georgia and then you and then NATO said, "Hey, Georgia, you should join us," then I will eat my hat, <laughs> and your causal story will be correct uh, that he invented uh, uh, an excuse to go uh, gallivanting his army across its borders. Uh, in order to uh, shore up domestic political support. Instead, I think what happened is uh, Putin was weakening and then he was given a very poisoned chalice by NATO uh, uh, and he drank it. And he I'm not saying that he should have drank it. I think that was bad for his country and for global stability, um, but that he did not initiate it, that NATO did. And 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 the reason the whodunit question matters, whodunit first, is because that is the kind of question which is going to give you a different sense of whether Russia is flexible and will respond to aggression with regression and will respond to uh, an open hand for a handshake with an open hand for a handshake, or whether you think Russia is just uh, like a, a rabid Doberman that will bite and draw blood whenever it can and, and might whimper and pretend to be a little bit weak when it suits its interest, but really is is not something ever yeah, to be dealt with because it's stuck Russia in a rut. I, I honestly don't think that Russia is very strong. Um, I think that a lot of its strength comes from the fact that it plays its hand very, very well. I think Putin is very good at knowing when to move forward and when to move back. Um, and it's it's also based on that idea of Putin as to why he's not going to ever side with the West. Because you don't get anything from it. You don't. You get like the lifting of sanctions, which is nice and you know, certainly desirable. But if you want to achieve a Russia, and he said this in his rhetoric and stuff before, the greatest, you know, the great the great calamity was the collapse of the Soviet Union created all this, this disorder in Eastern Europe, which is, you know, true. There was a lot of disorder caused by the collapse of the Soviet Union. A little bit of genocide, even. Yeah, a lot of very bad stuff. And yet... Um, so I did go to look up precisely when the South Ossetian conflict were uh, started, by the way. And as to be expected, it is complicated because South Ossetia sort of declares itself in 1991, but then there's like a whole peacekeeping operation. And then there's all sorts of, you know, uh, complications. The Georgians try to take it back. And then South Ossetian militiamen and freelance fighters from Russia, like South Ossetia at this point is kind of integrated into the Russian economy because it's essentially smuggling stuff across. So Russians and South Ossetian militiamen start fighting the Georgian government. And uh, it's then suddenly that Russia starts saying, um, as I understand it here, uh, saying, okay, guys, uh, South Ossetia is under our protection and the Georgian army can't come here. Mm-hmm. And then the South Ossetians say, well, flip you then. I think we're going to start making nice big overtures to NATO because NATO will keep us safe and get us back our land. And then the Russians no, say, you, well, hold no, on. No, you, you're completely smuggling the story around. You need to find the date of where NATO makes its overtures to Georgia. Okay, well, the invasion well, was in 2008, right? Ah. Anyway, let us go off we, this because we, we are can, now an hour and a half. We're we're an hour and a half. And look, I I think this is a complicated discussion. Um, and it might very well turn out to be the case that I'm wrong and that you're right. I'm open to the other possibility <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I'd be worried if you weren't. <laughs> um, 
and I think, but I think it's a good discussion to have because if you think, of, dude, turn on CNN just once a week for five minutes. You know who who are Ameri who do average Americans consider their adversaries to be? At the moment, I, it's two. It's it's Beijing and no, it's Moscow. No, let me tell you who Americans think that the they the, no, domestic is a whole bunch of you know. Yeah, they think that their biggest enemy is red, Team Red if they're Team Blue and Team Blue if they're Team Red. Correct, That's also why correct. America is such a mess right now. Correct, and we talk about that a lot. If you talk about other countries, the two countries are Russia and China, and that leaves the options of we should be against both of them, we should be against neither of them. Or we should be against one and not the other. I think it's interesting. I think a guy, look, I think Fareed Zakaria is just about one of the best analysts in the world. I really look up to him. I have great respect for him. He kind of leans towards be very nice to, he wants to play Nick's, you know, be very, he, he, his line is the same as Henry Kissinger's line in the 1970s be very nice to Beijing and very nasty to Moscow. I think it's I am fascinated by the fact that someone who is smarter than me, older than me, more experienced than me, more worldly than me, better read than me, someone with everything that Fareed Zakaria has, uh, just sees the world in what strikes me as such a, a naive way. It seems it seems so childish to think that you should be friendly with Beijing and hostile to Moscow. That seems silly. Um, I think being antagonistic to both being friendly to both uh or being uh friendly to moscow and antagonistic to beijing i, I think those are all more easy to play between um and there are and there are clearly costs and benefits to any of those options um but i do think that uh i've got a feeling that 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 it's uh that it's something it's clearly something that's coming to a head at the moment with the massing up of troops is clearly intertwined with green politics, which are very important both in Europe and in the U S uh, because Russia is a major exporter because the best response to Russia from a U.S. perspective is, is fracking is for America to continue to produce both natural liquid, natural gas and um, oil uh, because that minimizes both the influence of the, uh, of the, uh, of the OPEC cartel and of Moscow. Um, and at the same time, the the best argument against Putin from an economic perspective in a way that really does damage to him much more than the sanctions to his the legitimacy of his late regime um, is 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 uh, is an argument based on the thought that there should be less production of gas, petrol, and so on around the world. I think that's a fascinating thing. Anyway, uh, I I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting realm. I think it's I think it's also interesting that we really disagree about this. Um, well, look, we both agree that the big problem is China. <laughs> we do. We do. Yes. <laughs> and that, you know, whatever whatever the West policy towards, or I don't know, the, I, I prefer free world to West, but I do sometimes say West because of out of habit. Um, whatever the free world's policy to towards Russia, it is a complete sideshow to, the, to what's going on with China because China is where the power is, and it's what's going to dictate the conflict. If there is a conflict between uh, uh, the free world and and Russia, it will be because China supports it. Correct. And, I think and if and if something happens to Taiwan, I don't think the Russian Navy is going to be making all the difference in the world to the outcome of the conflict. Uh, <laughs> I think but the Russian I Navy think, does not have a good track record, <laughs> especially not in the East. 
I think that let's <laughs> <laughs> not talk about Sakhalov. Uh, I think the real issue here is precisely how this question matters inside the free world. How free w- people who live inside Germany, Italy, France, the UK, the Netherlands, and already those countries have quite different attitudes towards Russia. Netherlands probably the most friendly. Germany the most changed in the last year, uh, and so on. How France is thinking about Russia, how the, but especially how Washington is thinking about Russia. And I think there is a serious worry about, um, I have a serious worry about a kind of Russian, an anti-Russian bigotry in, in Washington, D.C., uh, clouding so, so cold do, clinical. I know, I know you've been saying this since, I know you've been saying this uh, 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 at least I know since, since 2016 and uh, possibly before, but it is worth saying that in actual policy terms, Biden has been much weaker on Russia than Trump <laughs> in terms of Lincoln. So it, your original fear, I know that you had a fear at a time that the Democrats were going to get caught up in a sort of, and they were during the Trump years of a sort of hysteria. Uh, uh, well, I'm not going to call it a red scare, but a Russia scare, right? Which, I thought that Trump was, was caught up in a kind of hysteria. Trump administration was be, was overcompensating. Trump was being so overtly friendly, and this is classic diplomacy. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you the, the the diplomatic Machiavelli himself, but 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 less so because um, because popular opinion didn't matter as much. Um, but uh, Gobineau's guy had the, there was this basic so old line that you, I think that's my favorite description of monarchy. Popular opinion didn't matter as much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is a different thing. But but back at, it's a sta- there's a standard thought that you should either be hostile and open and friendly in back channels, or you should be friendly in the open and hostile in back channels. In fact, the standard thought is that you should be friendly in the open and hostile in back channels with regimes whose whose constitution is somewhat like yours. I think this is sort of standard American uh, real polit- diplomacy protocol right uh is you you generally act quite nicely and friendly to if you're the u.s to the uk and france and germany and canada and whatever and mexico um but then quietly in the back channels you're constantly trying to stab each other in the eyeballs over the negotiating <laughs> table to yeah, win your own agreements yeah exactly. exactly so so i i, I think that um uh, that that under trump there was a funny kind of you know we're going to be really, really nice to this non-robust democracy in the open and really, really nasty in, in the background. And Biden, it's a little bit the other way around. I don't know. I, 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 I don't think – I don't even think that relations with Moscow – look, I think they do matter for the reasons that I said in terms of neighborhood, in terms of uh, uh, actual hard power, um, and in terms of – the the signal let's put it in a different way the signal that it sends about how important encircling beijing is um uh, but i really think the domestic i think another sense in which it matters is that i i kind of wish russia was in the news less and that when it was in the news it would be for a, a distinguishingly interesting reason good or bad um it feels a little bit to me like russia's often in the american news as a placeholder for some kind of internal strife that's being projected outwards. And that that in itself sucks the energy. As you say, America's reels, most Americans' reels, 
real enemies are their neighbors. And that's very unfortunate. Right. So if they don't figure that out, they're going nowhere. But when they do talk about foreign policy and they do think about it, they've got so little time and they spend half of it wasting, in my opinion, their time trying to encircle Russia. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think that uh, in the way that, Amer uh, that America actually treats the outside world, it really is uh, that, that America's great flaw is that they are entirely obsessed with themselves. As far as I can tell, generally Americans, when they see foreign policy, kind of think, well, you know, uh, uh, as the, long the as you're being think, nasty to the Russians, that's yeah, fine. Uh, no, uh, the, Democrat, the, the Democrats, the Democrats <laughs> think that, 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 the, that the Republicans are all Russians uh, and, and that the Russians are a stand-in for Republicans of a sort and vice versa with the Chinese at the moment. And, and it used to be the same in the Cold War, right? It was kind of like, if you're, if you're on the left, it must be because you're, uh, if the Russians are, are bad because they feed the American left. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Like there's a, yeah. there's, there's this, there's this, in the American mind, there's always an association between the outside enemy and the inside enemy. Mm -hmm. And that's also why their foreign policy is so completely dysfunctional. <laughs> yeah. I, I must say, I'm very disenchanted with American foreign policy of late because it just doesn't seem very coherent. But that's the story for another day, I think. Well, maybe, 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 maybe this is the nicest compliment one can pay to American foreign policy. Then is to say that at least two chaps like us can can sort of disagree. I'm not even sure if I really think they should be nice to Moscow. Maybe they shouldn't. I'm. I really am spitballing here. I'm. Tr I'm trying right, to think, think that. Because but I'm, you you think generally that Russia is getting a a, a a worse rap than it deserves. I'm interested in the counter argument as well. Maybe I am. I really am open to that possibility. Um, I think I, th but I, but I think it's a thing to try and get right. I, 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 I do think that w one can try and, uh, the, the Soviet Union was so important, uh, that by comparison, it can always seem like one is exaggerating the importance of Russia. Um, but I think not just in the, in the Asian, in the East Asian theater, also in the, in the West Asian theater, um, I mean, Russia just sold more fighter jets to Iran. If I'm correct, yeah, they are doing that. Although, I find that very irritating. I find that 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 frustrates me. Something is not going right when that well, happens. Well, dude, that's because that's because Iran is a wonderful little stick. Because you get them some fighter jets, and then the West goes, oh, and you make some money, and then the Iranians can go and bomb more people in Syria. <laughs> it's like it's, that's all bad. Something is going wrong, and I think. <laughs> And I'm trying to figure right. out, is, is the blame to be shared a little bit or is it all Moscow? Okay, but that's uh, enough, right? Yeah, look, I mean, let me say this as a final remark. It's very rare that only one side deserves the blame. Um, yeah, and that's the and that's the closest an Anglophile will ever get to compliment. <laughs> I'm not that much of an Anglophile, okay? <laughs> I just play one on TV. It's like I say to my friends, I'm not an alcoholic, I just play one on TV. Um, very good. <laughs> let's... Well, since we've managed to go to two hours, uh, because you're like, you know, let's go for a little bit longer by bringing up something really contentious we disagree with. Uh, do you have any recommendations? <laughs> um, I recommend that you go first. Oh, you know, I was about to recommend the same thing. Um, <laughs> I guess, I guess, you know, this is a this is not going to appeal to most of our listeners, but if you have two hours to kill and you really don't know what to do with yourself and you have a vague interest in the world of online entertainment 
There is a video done by a guy with an incredibly monotone voice that I actually find kind of soothing. Your mileage may, may vary, called Mad Season Show. And what he's done is a two-hour history of the business and the cultural impact of the game World of Warcraft. It's called World of Warcraft Pandora's Box. You can find it on YouTube. And basically, he just kind of talks about this game, which was a sort of cultural phenomenon. It really took off in the uh, in the, in the mid-2000s. It became this big thing that was being referenced all over pop culture. And then how the sort of fan base and the, the big company that had produced this game uh, uh, kind of fell out of love with each other and now have a far more antagonistic relationship. And... Um, it's it's an interesting story because it's about pop culture, it's about business, it's about uh, 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 the sort of subculture that that we get in the modern age, where people can be so attached to a product, um, and it, it it can be so important to them. Anyway, it's just kind of interesting if you have time to kill. So I recommend that as uh, my recommendation. Gabriel, uh, holiday novel that I read. Um... Not a novel, but it reads like a novel. It's called The Irish Game, A True Story of Crime and Art by Matthew Hart. And it's a true story about sort of the pro the, the largest private theft in, in history, which turns out to have taken place twice. Uh, it turns out <laughs> that the victims... ADT. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the victims were South Africans, um, uh, Lord and Lady Alf Lord Alfred Bate, uh, who was like a, uh, one of the one of those who profited very nicely, very richly, very handsomely uh, off of South Africa's natural mineral wealth, uh, gold, mainly diamonds, and uh, then bought a, a, a grand mansion, the grandest mansion outside Dublin, and stuffed it full of great art including a very a Vermeer uh, and Vermeer just about the most dear um, partly because there are so few unlike Picasso and and, and, some, and many uh, uh, prolific painters uh, but there was a huge collection of, of, of extremely expensive works uh, at the time of the theft I think the second theft 1989 it was like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars um, and of course, this being Ireland, uh, there is there's great romance. There's, there's there are the I mean, there's this arrest scene where this woman is arrested. In a one one detail. So the first time this theft happens, there's this English sort of heiress who got her undergrad at Oxford and then her PhD in economics, and then needed a cause to fall in love with because. It's, she was kind of too sexy to really stay in academia. And so she became an Irish. Um, she was a, a, a Rhodes Must Fall kind of decolonist in the 70s or whatever. Uh, she went to, you know, join the IRA. And in order to raise money for the IRA, she thought she would go and steal her own parents' paintings. Uh, and then in the trial, uh, she said, you know, she stole like their art collection worth like £100,000 or something. Uh, she said... Uh, the father said, dude, I just gave you a hundred thousand pounds on top of your allowance. Like, why are you stealing more stuff? And she said, but daddy, your money is ill begotten gains of white monopoly capital. And <laughs> you have no idea how hard it is to be. 
And I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but her final words actually in the trial were, I hope this, the court did find her guilty. She said, I have moved from being an intellectual into a freedom fighter. Finding me guilty is, this is the proudest day in my life. And then the second time she was arrested, she said, I see no court here. I see no justice. I only see agents of oppression in the colonial regime against the Irish. Anyway, so a wonderful brat who turns out to like hijack a helicopter and drop bombs on a hospital, but the bombs don't go off. And she keeps sleeping with different Irish men who, who go to jail every time they get arrested. She gets out because they say, no, the poor lady must have been badly influenced by the Irish rapscallion. So you can see there was some truth to uh, all of yeah. the stereotypes that were being yeah, the, the, <laughs> against the English who were kind of nasty to the there's Irish. No, yeah, there's no, there's no... No, no racism like the soft bigotry of low expectations. Oh, but then the best bit comes, dude, when they when the first uh, theft of this of this grand collection, the bait collection takes place. Um, they close all the borders to Ireland. It happens on a Friday evening. They steal like 15, 20 paintings, tie up the butler, tie up the lord and the lady, put her in the bath, and you know, rip all the paintings off the walls. The the police find out about it the next morning. And they close all of the borders, all of the seaports. They also then man all of the borders to Northern Ireland, which are already very well manned, and they're already investigating every car and lorry to check if there's any bombs, so they're pretty confident uh, nothing's coming through there. And then they search the area around Dublin for like a week. They can't find anything. So then they send an instruction to search for the police to search every little village and hamlet along the coast in all of rural Ireland. They search the entire rural Ireland because they say <laughs> that this lady looks English, so she couldn't hide in a big city because someone would say, someone would recognize her because her face is all over the thing and there's like rewards being offered on the newspapers and the radio. So she must be hiding out in a rural area. They're going to search the whole of rural Ireland. This one police officer gets the message. He's the only police officer in this little village. He's like, dude, I've just moved here and I've got a week off. I've got a week of paid leave to move in. So I'm not doing anything. So for a week, <laughs> he moves in. <laughs> he goes for like coffee on the Wednesday for a pint or whatever and speaks to like his old colleague. And they're like, oh, how's the search for the paintings going? And they're like, ah, oh, it's going really well, but we can't find anything. <laughs> He's like, that's fine. That's great. That's great. Do the week ends. Another day goes and he's office work. Then finally he goes on the search. True enough, he finds this lady and then he's very worried because he knows that she's surrounded by armed people. So then he goes back to the car. He can kind of tell it's her because she looks too frazzled to be a tourist, but she looks too foreign to be a local. It's like, it must be her. Goes back to the car, drives, can't call from that house because there is no phone. Can't call from the nearest village because the IRA is probably posted up there. Has to drive 45 minutes back to the next, like the police station to phone in support because he doesn't have a gun and neither does his partner because they're Irish. Guarda, guardia. Anyway, she still doesn't get away because there is only one road coming from that little village. <laughs> <on the coast>. <laughs> <laughs> so they intercept her. She goes to the port. She stands and they find, they, they follow her. To, to the nearest port where she goes, stands on the pier for an hour looking at the sunset. And then she comes back 
And then they follow her in the cars behind back to the place. And then she drops off the car, which she borrowed from the landlady, which she'd never met before. In Ireland, you can just borrow landlady. <laughs> hey, can I borrow and then they put her in the back of the police van and they take her to jail. That is just such a romantic way to be arrested. It is so unlike. Anyway, the, the, the book goes on and on like that. And it's very racy and it's kind of Good. interesting. And it gets into high well, what's finance. What's it called again? Uh, the Irish Game. The Irish Game. Okay. So... Uh... That, that story of a sort of unarmed British policeman attempting to do something difficult reminds me of a time when a German Zeppelin in World War I, after bombing London, crashed in the English countryside. And the surviving German troops tried to basically make it to the Channel. And they were stopped and then arrested by a single Englishman on a bicycle with no gun. <laughs> a single police officer. <laughs> And they tried in, in in and the officer knew very good English, so he tried to pass them off as like, oh, we're just troops on a on a on a on a, on a bit of a jaunt. <laughs> and the policeman was having none of it. He said, no, no, none of that. Please follow me. He took me to prison. Uh, <laughs> Jolly good show. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice anyway, okay, cool. Very good. I think that's all, all we're going to call it. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed this, or, or, well, as per usual, fairly meandering episode, and half an hour shorter than last time. Wow. Uh, anyway, <laughs> have a wonderful Next time will be half an hour shorter than this. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll slim try. our way back down. Uh, and with that, keep the flag bloody flying. Grr, 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 grr.